Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 143, The End of Alzheimer's with Dr. Dale Bredesen. Now that uh, certainly sounds like quite a claim there, but Dr. Dale Bredesen is a man who seeks to make Alzheimer's a rare disease. He shifts how we think about health and is relentless in his pursuit to understand best how the brain works and how we can both prevent uh, brain-related illness and reverse brain-related illness once uh, the onset of it. And uh, he, uh, <laughs> it's just amazing when you read the bio of someone like Dale. I mean, he has over 30 patents to his name. Notably, he put much of his finding and research into the 2017 New York Times bestseller, The End of Alzheimer's. Uh, but his research explores uh, previously uncharted territory in the explaining the physical mechanism between, behind the erosion of memory seen in Alzheimer's disease and has opened the door to new approaches in treatment. This work has led to the identification of several new therapeutic processes that are now showing remarkable early results. So it's absolutely wonderful to have Dale with us today to hook into this topic. I have a couple of little things to share before we kick off. I have actually, Dale talks about the importance of meditation and a mindfulness practice in today's show. So I want to remind you guys that we have the wonderful Guy Lawrence from Let It In Academy, uh, who has offered a free seven minute heart coherence meditation and a PDF of an absolutely stellar morning routine to get your day started right. Uh, and supercharge that mindset that we all seek to. You know that way where you just, you start with the best intentions, but often like half an hour into your day, you're like, how did it get so crazy all of a sudden? And uh, some of the stuff that Guy steps us through in this morning routine and some of what you'll benefit from in doing this seven-minute heart coherence meditation is absolutely going to help you feel in control and like you're running the show, uh, much, much more uh, likely, that is. So Guy is a coach, speaker, uh, entrepreneur. He's the founder of Let It In. I actually have him on the show next week to dig into the topic of meditation a little bit more because I really love what he has to say about this topic. And uh, he's sort of designed, well, he hasn't sort of, he absolutely has designed uh, a program to help bridge the gap between the life people want to live and the life they're living currently. And it's not that everything is bad in life, but it's more about harnessing a sense, a greater sense of flow. And uh, he does that using meditation in the language of neuroscience. And I know so many people were interested in the work I was doing of Dr. Joe Dispenza's a couple of weeks ago when I talked about it on the show. So I think this is a beautiful thing this month to be able to offer you guys You head to letitin.com.au forward slash Alex and you can pick up that meditation there and look out for the show I'm doing with Guy next week. Last little thing I wanted to say was we clocked a million listens uh, on the podcast like two weeks ago now, but I completely forgot to share it with you guys on the show, just in case you're not on social media especially. And... um, I'm, I'm just so thrilled to have you all here, to have you tuning in. Some of you have tuned in religiously every week since the beginning. Some of you just, you know, dip in and out depending on what the topic is that you're interested in 
whatever it is your commitment to tuning into this show, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate you so, so much. There is absolutely no need for a podcast without listeners. So you make this show. It's not about me or even the guests. It's about all of us turning up together for these conversations. So thank you for every review. Thank you for every uh, comment that you leave in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to make a gazillion more shows full of interesting conversations to bring to our community about how we can move things forward for our health and the planet. And it really blows my mind the size of a number like 1 million uh, when I think about the amount of change that may have been spurred on by just popping those headphones in your ear for an hour and uh, and seeing what comes of, of that day's show. So uh, whether you've joined me in the Lotox Club, which you can join through Patreon or not, I just want to say thank you so much for being here and enjoy today's show. Dr. Dale Bredesen, hello and thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. I'm very excited about this chat and I know many people in the Lotox community have read and loved your book, uh, but we are all about getting more people to know your work because there's so much we can do in the preventative space, even if Alzheimer's has not touched someone's family yet. And I think this is where there's a huge opportunity to, uh, to shift some of those really alarming statistics that we see uh, rising in our, in our world. Um, before we hook into the questions though, I would love to just ask you one first question, which is how medicine became a passion in your life, you know, through school as a young man, and then sort of how Alzheimer's became a core interest for you as a professor of neurology, which you have then become. Yeah. So, um, in school, I was actually interested in mathematics uh, but uh, I, I, I kind of, well, there was a lot of math that wasn't practical. And I thought that uh, affecting human health is such an important and practical thing. I got very interested in that. And then, of course, how the brain works. So I got very interested in what are the mechanisms of brain function, especially how do we remember things? How do we learn things? And from there, I thought, okay, well, there are all these things that go wrong with the brain. And I wanted to understand, and when I realized, and I got to medical school and then neurology residency, I realized that this is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As people say, everybody knows a cancer survivor, nobody knows an Alzheimer's survivor. And so I get intrigued by, you know, what is actually wrong? Why are we not able to do something about this common illness, which is now in the U.S. become the third leading cause of death? Um, it's on the rise all over. It is a trillion-dollar global problem and just tears families apart, as you know. Mm. So I just got interested in how does this work? And so we set up the lab specifically to look at could we understand the basic mechanism of neurodegeneration in enough detail that we could begin to fashion the first effective treatments. Wow, that is one heck of a bold mission there, Doc, uh, and, and one that you have really sort of succeeded in, in, in part. You know, you're starting to see results, which is just amazing. Um, and I think often we dive straight into the details, uh, real nitty-gritty and biochemistry and genes and variants of genes, but I would love a, an Alzheimer's 101. So what is happening when we get it? Who to, do we, who do we know is getting it in, in the largest part? What kind of demographic? 
and how much of it is bio-individual um, and environmental versus, uh, you know, obviously stepping through stages that, you know, common to all in terms of treatments that you're starting to see um, work or not work so well? Yeah, that's a great question. And so really it's two separate stories. So the, the old fashioned notion is you get Alzheimer's for reasons that we don't understand. You get this amyloid and the amyloid in your brain is bad for you somehow. And we give you drugs that don't work, uh, that have a minimal or no effect. Uh, and when we try to get rid of the amyloid, which has been the big push for the last decade or so in the pharmaceutical world, uh, it doesn't seem to help. And in fact, we've seen people who clearly get worse when you try to get rid of the amyloid. And so that's the, the, the old notion. The 21st century notion, and what the last 30 years in, in my research lab showed, is that this is a very different story than what we were taught. That in fact, what we call Alzheimer's disease is actually a protective response to multiple different types of insults. So we are responding in a protective way to various microbes, to various toxins, to various metabolic and vascular changes. And that when we respond to those, we are putting something down. It's a little bit like thinking about a so-called scorched earth retreat. If you're retreating from something that is advancing toward you, but you're scorching the earth as you go so that the thing that's coming at you isn't gonna be able to use this. That's essentially what Alzheimer's is doing. Mm -hmm. You are downsizing to survive these various insults. And you can actually see that it works quite well because as you know, people often have the underlying changes of Alzheimer's for about 20 years before a diagnosis. Mm. So what we wanna do instead of the old fashioned notion was diagnose it as Alzheimer's, we don't know what's causing it, but we're gonna give you a drug. Well, the approach we've taken is to say, why do you have this? You don't get cognitive decline for no reason. And what we found is that there are dozens and dozens of different contributors and that there are six different subtypes. So we can actually say this person has type one and this person has type two. And then the treatment is actually personalized. It's going after what's causing it in you as opposed to what may be causing it in some other person. And of course, there's a genetic component, but in fact, true familial Alzheimer's disease is only represents less than 5% of Alzheimer's. For 95 plus percent of us, we would get sporadic Alzheimer's disease, and therefore we would be able to look and see, okay, why now, of course, your genome, you're still playing onto the genome, it's still important, but it's not inevitable. And so in fact, we've been told that there is nothing to do about this disease. And the fact of the matter is, there is a tremendous armamentarium that we have for both prevention and for the first time we published in 2014 for reversal of cognitive decline. And we're seeing it again and again and again. Uh, we just published 100 patients who had documented improvement in their cognition, who had either Alzheimer's or pre-Alzheimer's, where we have before and after things like quantitative EEG and or uh, quantitative cognitive tests and or evoked responses and or MRIs of volumetrics. So repeatedly, we can see improvements. And most importantly, they are sustained improvements. We have people now who've been on for over seven years and who have sustained their improvement. 
Wow, that is spectacular and so hopeful. And by sustained improvement, do you mean um, cure or is that a, a dirty word in the work you do? Yeah, we never use the term cure because mm -hmm. for that you would need to have an autopsy and you mm -hmm. would need to say, aha, we proved that this was there before and we proved that this process is gone now. When we do have, for example, follow-up MRIs, we can show improvement, for example, hippocampal atrophy that is now going away. But when we have, for example, follow-up amyloid PET scans, the amyloid is still there. There may be a minimal change in it, but this amyloid stays for a long time. This is actually where I think the anti-amyloid therapy could be so helpful. After people get better, after you get rid of the reason that you're actually making this stuff, now is when you want to get rid of it. Mm. So it's a little bit like putting troops in another country. Now the skirmish is over, you put the troops in a fort, but you still keep them there in case a problem arises in the future. That's what these lakes of amyloid are all about. Yeah. And so I, I remember reading in your work that the amyloid um, uh, is like a, the protection mechanism in part for like pathogens, fungi, etc. right? So as you were talking about before, it's like preserving and conserving and, and protecting from those things. So, yes. and so this was actually described several years ago by Professor Robert Moyer uh, and Professor Rudy Tanzi from Harvard, who showed that in fact, beta amyloid can act like an antimicrobial. It has an antimicrobial effect. It also, by the way, has a toxin binding effect. It also has a metabolic effect at the insulin receptor. It interacts with multiple things. So it's involved with trophic response. It's involved with metabolic response, with toxin binding, with pathogen killing. So it's a pretty remarkable molecule, but it's something that is really there because of the insult. So we want to go upstream, not simply get rid of the mediator. It doesn't make a lot of sense just to get rid of the mediator. Yeah, because if you did that, you it would then create more stress on the body, surely, because it's there to actually try and protect. Yeah, exactly right. right. Okay. Now, you mentioned six different classifications and subtypes. I had read about three. Um, so could you just share um, what you and the group of colleagues that d decided to try and embark upon the different um, forms of Alzheimer's and how they could be classed. And, um, and I guess kind of just define each one and, and so we can see how they overlap maybe and how they're different. Yeah, and this, by the way, you know, this came out of the test tubes. We were looking at the molecular mechanisms of neurodegeneration. Mm -hmm. And what we see is that APP itself, at the center of this, you have the amyloid precursor protein. This is the thing that actually gives rise to the amyloid when it is cut. And this thing actually functions very interestingly as a molecular switch. So when things are good, that you've got in plenty of vitamin D and estradiol and thyroid and you don't have inflammation and your NF-kappa B is not activated and your C4A is okay, all those things, it is cut at a single site, which is called the alpha site. And of course, that gives you two pieces, two peptides, which are called SAPP-alpha and alpha-CTF or C-terminal fragment. This thing is then pieces, and these things actually support making synapses and keeping synapses. On the other hand, when things are bad, you've got inflammation, you've got a reduction in trophic support, you've got onboard toxins, et cetera. It's cut at three sites, beta, gamma, and caspase, that gives you now four fragments, SAPP beta, A beta, which is what everyone looks at, but that's actually a 
piece of a bigger story, JCASP and C31. And these guys support just the opposite, pulling back. They're literally pulling, signaling, forgetting, pulling back and reorganizing the synapses. And so when we started looking in people to say, okay, what are the things that drive you one way or the other? What you could see is that different people had different drivers, and there are dozens of these drivers. So if you have metabolic syndrome, for example, you are driving it toward the wrong, what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, these are the bad guys mm. toward pulling back on your synaptic network. And so what we found is that what we call type one, these are people where the main problem is an ongoing systemic inflammation. And this can be from a leaky gut, of course. It can be from poor dentition. It can be from Lyme disease and on and on and on. And these things will cause NF-kappa B activation, which interestingly actually interacts and actually increases the production of the molecules that cleave the APP to make the A-beta, so-called beta and gamma secretase. So that's type one or inflammatory Alzheimer's disease. Type two is atrophic Alzheimer's. These are people where there's not a lot of inflammation, but in fact, you don't have the trophic factors, hormones, or nutrients, or all of the above, to support that neural network. So you literally have to downsize. And that can be vitamin D, and it can be estradiol, and 3T3, and BDNF, and nerve growth factor, you know, on and on and on. So that is so-called atrophic or type 2 Alzheimer's. Then there's something we call type 1.5, because it's got features of both of those. Mm -hmm. And that is glycotoxic. This is literally sugar-induced Alzheimer's. And it gives you both. It gives you the inflammation because the glucose, as you know, glycates hundreds of proteins. It changes their shape. It changes their inflammatory characteristics. It changes their function. So you get some of the inflammatory component, but it also causes insulin resistance. And therefore, you get a trophic loss. The insulin no longer keeps your neurons alive. We spent years growing neurons in dishes to study them, and when you do that, you have to include insulin to keep the neurons alive. So the insulin is a very important trophic factor for your brain. You shut off that response, you're not gonna do very well. So that's type 1.5 or glycotoxic or sweet Alzheimer's. Then type three is toxic, and it can be metallotoxins or other inorganics, organics, things like benzene and toluene. For example, things from burning paraffin candles. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a problem. And then number three, uh, things like mycotoxins, as you know, biotoxins produced by molds and other sorts of things. These all can give you type 3 Alzheimer's disease. And then type 4 is vascular, and type 5 is traumatic. So those insults are critical in your body's determination about whether you're going to cleave your APP in the anti-Alzheimer's way or in the pro-Alzheimer's way. So of course, for each person who comes in with cognitive decline, who's headed for Alzheimer's or has Alzheimer's or is at risk for Alzheimer's, we're seeing that they're on the wrong side of that balance. So we want to determine all of the things that are pushing them in that direction, and we want to get them back on the good side, essentially on the synaptoblastic side instead of the synaptoclastic side, very much like you do with osteoporosis. It's just that this is a little more complicated because you have more inputs, but it's the same idea. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it really just brings it back to this toxic soup analogy that I have, you know, whether it's stress, whether it's excess sugar, whether it's biotoxins, there's just, you know, you really just want to start taking the ingredients out and get back to a nice, simple broth. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, the reality is we are all living in situations where our bodies really weren't designed to live. We weren't designed to live with all these mycotoxins. We weren't designed to live with you know, low vitamin D. We weren't designed to live with high sugar intakes and processed food intakes and sleep apnea and leaky gut. All these things, we really weren't designed to live that way. And it ultimately wreaks havoc on our synaptic connections. Mm. And, you know, hotly contested vitamin D levels, something as simple as a vitamin D level. It gets, you know, we've got to get it here. We've got to get it there. Don't take vitamin D supplements. Do take, what's your take on that, please? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, one of the issues here is that you know, we're agnostic about, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. We just say, look, whatever is going to make your neurochemistry the most supportive of your brain is critical. Mm. And so it turns out that in fact, people do the best with their brains as probably saw there was a nice study on multiple sclerosis. Yeah. People do the best with levels over 50. Uh, now again, uh, you can argue about whether you should have it this way, you should have it that way. You know, is it, is it okay to have it sitting around 20? Uh, I would prefer my own level be more in the 50 to 80 range. Um, but I don't have a problem if people are a little lower than that. But yes, if they're, especially if they are uh, symptomatic, remember that when we see these people with cognitive decline, either we're going to make them better or they're going to die. Mm. So this is a, as far as I'm concerned, this is an emergency. You're looking at, you're, you're going to pull out all the stops. Now, if your vitamin D level is 60 or 70, it's unlikely that's going to hurt you. Now, once it gets you know, over 100, yeah, we want to stay away. We like to be in the 50 to 80 range. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we don't want it to be too high, but there's no toxicity from being in the 50, 60, 70, 80 range. And yet there's some evidence that for your brain, that's actually better than being in the 20, 30 range. Yeah, gotcha. And, and if it is in the normal range, then could it just be a case of the fact that for that patient, that's not what's going on and you've got to look elsewhere? Absolutely. No, yeah. and that's the whole point. So we look right now, we actually look at 150 different variables. Some of these are historical variables. You know, have you been exposed to various things, et cetera? And then many of them are basic biochemistry. You can look, you know, you want to know your homocysteine and you want to know your C4A and you want to know your stat, you know, status of iodine. You want to know these basic things, the things that actually are driving or could drive Alzheimer's. And then as you say, we talk, we, we tell the patients, imagine you have 36 holes in your roof. And we say that because when we first started this, we looked at how many different mechanisms impact this balance that I talked about. And we initially identified 36 of them. So the answer is, okay, you've got a roof with 36 holes. Now, some of your holes may be closed. So as you say, if your vitamin D is optimal, that hole is closed, great move on to the next one. But for example, you may have a very low free T3, or you may have a high HSCRP. That hole's wide open. Okay. Now, a drug is a very good patch for one hole, but it doesn't patch all the other holes. So my hope is that future drug trials will be done on the backbone of an optimal personalized program where you're patching the rest of the holes. Mm. And so, you know, you mentioned C4A, you mentioned free T3. C4A, we have to send away our blood to America at the moment if we live in Australia to find out what that's all about. 
Um, and then with free T3, we have to pay for that ourselves um, okay. because doctors here, uh, in terms of using our um, universal healthcare um, billing, yeah. which we're very grateful that we have universal healthcare, yeah. um, something America will hopefully have one day soon. Yeah, we don't um, have it. <laughs> but we have to pay for that ourselves. And I'm curious to know in, in the States right now, is this a neat little package, a panel of sorts that you um, and various doctors in the network offer to test for um, risk factors and contributing factors if someone's already actually been diagnosed? Yeah, and even for people who haven't been diagnosed, because we like, of course, in the long run, we'd like to see a reduction in the global burden of dementia. Mm. We'd like for everybody to get on prevention. We recommend just as, you know, it's so interesting to me, we're all taught when we turn 50, we're supposed to get a colonoscopy, but nobody ever tells you, well, what about your head? And so what we recommend is, okay, when you turn 45 or older, get a cognoscopy. Get, you get in a, a set of tests. So we have that. You can actually do it directly online. Uh, so you can actually go on and get the appropriate tests. Now, what's interesting, people say, well, you know, how expensive is it? Well, I always tell them it's one one hundredth of the cost of being in a nursing home for a year. So the problem here is if you don't do this, and my hope is just as you said, you know, ultimately universal health care and ultimately insurance companies, they'll all realize it's so much better to start at the beginning. Mm. and never to have people have to go into a nursing home. I mean, it's horrible. Mm. And so, you know, this is something, of course, we'd like the test to be free. We'd like them to get as, as many as we can, as inexpensive as we can, and we're getting there. We're, more and more of them are being covered by insurance now. And I look forward to the day, as you said, that, you know, universal health care will just say, of course we want nobody to be demented. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, why would we allow this to happen? That's the thing that's kind of amazing. This does not have to happen. We should make this a rare disease. And if people would do the appropriate things, then it, this could be a rare disease. And that's the direction this is headed. Oh, I love it. And so for our American listeners that would be able to access a cognoscopy or people traveling to the States, how, do, how does, can one just ask their regular doctor or do you have to see an integrative physician, a naturopathic doctor? Um, a neurologist, how does it um, actually work? Because often yeah. we get asked afterwards, so what do I do now? It's like, actually, I didn't ask. So I ask everybody now, how does this look? Step us through. Very simple. You go on the internet and go to drbredison.com. And we have trained now over 1,500 physicians in 10 different countries, including Australia. There are a number of people there. Dr. Dave Jenkins, Dr. Ricky oh, yeah. Okuno, who works with him. Um, and there are others uh, throughout Australia who have trained as well. And so, you know, we're hoping that there will be, it'll be easier and easier, more and more user-friendly for people to take advantage of this. And so, yes, we've started with... Uh, people uh, simply going on there, getting the appropriate tests. And you can get it even and take a report. We call this a recode report for reversing cognitive decline. Take this report to your doctor. Um, of course, as you said, better for the ones that are already trained. You can also take it to a physician who hasn't necessarily been trained but understands something about root cause medicine, about integrative or functional or so-called P4 medicine, precision medicine. I mean, this is 21st century medicine. This is a, the approach of the future. Mm, very exciting. Um, now, the overlap that we talked about already is the amyloid beta plaques. We didn't yeah. talk about tat angles. Um, can we better understand, understand those little guys? 
right? <laughs> so here's what happens. So tau, as you know, tau is like rivets. It is a stabilizing molecule when you make microtubules. So again, when you're going to make connections, you're often reaching out a long way for these connections. So imagine you're putting out in your house, imagine that you're building something on, you're putting in rivets to stabilize the girders. That's the tau. It is the rivet sitting in there that's stabilizing these. Now, what happens? When you signal, uh-oh, pull back, pull back, then you want to pop those rivets out as quickly as possible. And so tau has a way to do that. When it is phosphorylated, the rivet pops out. And so what do you see in Alzheimer's? No surprise. You see a ton of phosphorylated tau, which is simply saying, okay, I've been getting signals to pull out and allow the collapse of these neurites, these extended neurites. And that is exactly what's happening in Alzheimer's. That's what we measure. And this actually is downstream from a number of signals, but one of them is it is downstream from the father of amyloid, which is APP, amyloid precursor protein that we talked about before. When you cut this to make the two good guys that support the growing forward, of course you don't phosphorylate your tau. But when you cut it in the way to make the four bad guys that are pulling back, of course you do phosphorylate your tau. And you can actually trace, what's amazing about this, you can trace the molecular pathways for example, from inflammation to Alzheimer's. You can trace the pathway from reduction in estradiol or testosterone or vitamin D. Um, just amazing the way you can see these things actually trace directly into the pathways that lead to what we call Alzheimer's disease. Wow. And I mean, it just keeps highlighting everything you're saying keeps telling us we can really um, uh, navigate this way before we see anything actually starting to happen. And that's one of the good things about the fact that you know, the, the downside is we're all now dying of complex chronic illnesses. A hundred years ago, people were mostly dying of a simple, acute uh, infectious illnesses. We were dying of things like pneumococcal pneumonia and diphtheria and, and tuberculosis and things like that. The great success of 20th century medicine is that we conquered those diseases largely through antibiotics, of course, um, and public health measures. Now in the 21st century, we are almost all dying of complex chronic illnesses. And unfortunately, we've taken the same approach. Let's get a single drug for this complex illness. And it's like using your checker strategy for a chess <laughs> It really doesn't work. And so in fact, you need to look at all of the different contributors. The good news about these diseases is that they are chronic and therefore you can see them coming years ahead of time. Before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you typically have 20 years of ongoing pathophysiology. Just the part which what we call SCI, subjective cognitive impairment, which are the earliest changes, very treatable, very reversible, we see it again and again and again. That lasts about a decade. Wow. So, in, so the, the take home message here is, as soon as you have any problems, get in there, get treated. If you don't go for prevention, then at least go for the earliest reversal possible because th those give you the best outcomes. As you go further and further along, we do see some outcomes later, even with people with MOCA scores of zero, which is end stage, but that's the exception, not the rule. So the earlier you get it, the better off you're going to be. In fact, some of the doctors say, you know, they're happy when they see someone come in the early stages because they know that they're going to do very, very well.
Amazing. And so even before early stages, this decade that you talk about before you could even um, suggest a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, what are we looking at? What kind of symptoms? Right. So the very earliest changes are asymptomatic. And those consist typically of a change in your ability to metabolize glucose, especially in your temporal lobe and your parietal lobe. So it kind of looks like an L. And these can come on years before a diagnosis. You also begin to see amyloid collecting in the brains. You sh- if, you do a, if you do a spinal tap, uh, which we try not to do in most of these people because you can, get, you can actually do a tremendous amount without doing a spinal tap. But if you do that, you can see that there is a change in what's called the A-beta-tau index, or A-T-I. The A-beta-42 goes down, the phospho-tau goes up, and so the ratio now is abnormal. The first symptoms tend to fall into two groups. And again, what happens, people keep telling you, well, there's nothing you can do about Alzheimer's anyway, so just to see if it gets better. And that's the opposite of what you want to do. Look, the best thing to do, you go in and someone says, great, it's not Alzheimer's. Hallelujah. That doesn't hurt you. What hurts you is to wait and wait and wait, and they say, oh, yeah, this really is late Alzheimer's, and there's not much we can do. So get in early and and get this uh, checked out. So there's two kinds, essentially, of Alzheimer's. Amnestic, where the, the first problem is the typical can't learn new things. And if you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Your brain has remembered all these amazing things how to speak, how to understand, how to write, how to calculate, how to do your job, all these amazing things. It's actually not that important to you if you remember a TV show from tonight, like a Friends rerun, not such a big deal. So if something's got to go, that's typically the first thing that goes. So we have these people all the time. They can play tennis, drive their cars, do their jobs, do everything. They just can't learn new things. Mm-hmm. And that's when you want to get in early on. Then there's the non-amnestic presentation, which is the other thing that's a little less common in Alzheimer's, but it's actually more serious in general. These are people who can't organize. They often lose their jobs very early on because they just can't organize things anymore. They can't get their work done, or they can't calculate, or they can't come up with the right word or they can't navigate. They'll pull up to a stop sign in a place that they've been a hundred times before and have no idea which way to turn and they'll get lost. And so these are the non-amnestic presentations. They may have trouble with visual perception, with recognizing objects and things like this. Um, So these are the ones that we think of as more common with toxic induction, so-called type three Mm. Alzheimer's, which really looks quite different than type 1, 1. 1.5, and 2 Alzheimer's disease. Mm, so interesting. I remember when I was at the worst of the mold illness, uh, <laughs> I would be chatting to somebody and, uh, and I would say, oh, can you just pass me the, uh, the you know, the, and it's like salt, Alex. It's yeah. the salt. And I just couldn't get my words out. Now, that's obviously not an Alzheimer's diagnosis in that case because, the toxin was identified long before it started to produce, uh, you know, serious effects. But it, right. it really, um, it really did highlight for me how much, uh, just how incredibly powerful our environment is in terms of taking away some of our basic mental and physical functions. It's incredible. No question. Mm. 
So um, let's talk about genes a little bit. There is a lot of talk and worry about uh, having the APOE4 gene, gene mutation, sorry. Uh, and, um, and I'd love for you to talk to us about the research behind that gene in terms of how and why it was identified as a, a major thing to look at. And what, what's the latest research there? And if there are any other genes as a follow-up question that we need to be looking at? And there are many genes. It's not just APOE4, it's mm. CD33, and it's, uh, you know, and it's um, TREM2, and it's, uh, I mean, you know, dozens and dozens of these things. Um, you know, it's uh, the CR1, which is a complement receptor, I mean, on and on. So there are many, many SNPs that are related to this. And also, by the way, some of the detox pathways are uh, important as well. Uh, so, in fact, by the way, there's a SNP near C4A, which is also important. So all these things are important. But as you indicated, the big one, the common one, is APOE. And APOE is just a remarkable, remarkable story. It was originally identified, actually, by Professor uh, Robert Maley um, as something which comes up, the protein comes up when you eat a high-fat meal. So it is, as they would say, it's like your butcher. It's the guy who carries around the fat. It's an apolipoprotein, so it's carrying around fats. And the question is, what the heck does that have to do with Alzheimer's disease? Well, then it was identified later by Professor Alan Roses and his colleagues that, in fact, there was a tremendous association, and it is far and away the number one genetic association with Alzheimer's. So here's the way this works. You can have APOE 2, 3, or 4, and so you get two copies, one from your mother, one from your father, just like you do with blue eyes, brown eyes, and blonde hair, brown eyes, all the same idea. And so the majority of people are APOE4 negative. It's about three quarters of us. Um, and so in the US, for example, about a quarter of people have a single copy of APOE4, about 75 million Americans. And then about 2%, so about almost 7 million Americans have two copies. And the way this works is, if you have zero copies, your lifetime chance of Alzheimer's is about 9%. It's not zero, but it's not terribly high. If you have one copy, then your lifetime chance is about 30%. And if you have two copies, your lifetime chance is well over 50%. Most likely you will develop Alzheimer's during your lifetime. Now the good news is, None of these people should be getting it. And in fact, they just need to know and get on the appropriate prevention. There's a wonderful website started by a wonderful woman named Julie G who has two copies herself and was actually scoring in the 35th percentile on cognitive tests, clearly had gone downhill. She's now repeatedly at 98th percentile doing absolutely great seven years into this. Um, and she is on uh, a version of the program doing very, very well. Mm, amazing. Yeah, over 3,000 people now on that site who are APOE4 positive, who all share their stories and share their insights. It's a social network for prevention and reversal of cognitive decline. That's and what so, we want. That's a useful social network right there. Absolutely. It's a very useful social network, and it'll help going forward with optimizing the approach that we're all taking. So, so that's the way this works. Now, why is it that your butcher, the guy carrying around the fat, would give you Alzheimer's? So we started a project actually over a decade ago in the lab to ask that very question. Everybody knows somehow there's something about APOE4 and somehow it ends in Alzheimer's. But what's in the middle? What's in the black box in the middle? So we started a project to look at that. And this was actually spearheaded by a guy in the lab, in the lab Professor Ramahan Rao 
who did a fabulous job and looked at what actually happens between the ApoE4 and the Alzheimer's disease. And what he found was really surprising. Now, I should mention, ApoE4 was the primordial gene. So it was the thing when we came down out of the trees five to seven million years ago and the first hominids appeared, they were ApoE4-4. For 96% of our evolution as hominids, everyone's been ApoE4-4. Just in the last 220,000 years, ApoE3 appeared, and then just in the last 80,000 years, ApoE2 appeared. So this was the original gene, and it's been suggested actually by Professor Tuck Finch at University of Southern California, that this was a pro-inflammatory gene that helped us as we come down out of the trees. What happens? We step on dung, we puncture our feet, we're eating raw meat. This is actually all before fire, so we're eating lots of microbes, we're fighting with our brethren, we're fighting with our food. And so in all those scenarios, it helped us to have a pro-inflammatory gene, which is what ApoE4 did. Now, how the heck does ApoE4 lead to inflammation. So what uh, Professor Rao in the lab found and what we published a few years ago is that ApoE4 binds to various receptors that had been known before and other ApoE2 and 3 bind to the same receptors. But when it goes into the cell, it actually enters the nucleus, which hadn't been appreciated before, and it interacts with 1,700 different gene promoters and when it does that, it changes the entire programming of your cell to a more pro-inflammatory program, which protects you from things like mycotoxins, protects you from things like infections, but in the long run is responsible for things like cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's, pro-inflammatory conditions. Mm. And so in fact, you can live the appropriate way for either ApoE3 or ApoE4. You needn't expose yourself to this and get this problem. It's really surprising if you take those 1,700 genes and you now group them, you could not tell a better story for Alzheimer's disease. They're genes that have to do with neurotrophins and programmed cell death and longevity and inflammation, the very things that we associate with Alzheimer's. Interestingly, one of the genes that it binds to and decreases the production is SIRT1, which is why everyone takes resveratrol, of course. And so SIRT1 actually has an interesting anti-Alzheimer's effect. It is associated with activation of the alpha secretase, which is the thing that makes the cleavage for the two good guys. So you can really, again, you can trace the path from ApoE4 to Alzheimer's. And what you find is not only is this your a butcher, but it's also your senator. It's making the laws of the land. It's changing the way our DNA is transcribed and the whole program for each cell. Mm, wow. That's, that's a big one to take in. Um, I'm curious, you said if you don't have a copy of the mutation, you're at about 9%. Is that right? It's about 9%. Yeah. If you're, and, for example, if you're a 3-3, three, three, uh, for yeah. example, which is extremely common. Mm. Uh, however, you have to be careful. As you can imagine, because you don't have that pro-inflammatory effect, you are actually more sensitive as a 3-3 to things like some of the mycotoxins and things like that. So we actually see more of the toxic type of Alzheimer's in the non-APOE4s, whereas we see more of the inflammatory and the atrophic type 
uh, in the APOE4s. That is very interesting because I'm an APOE3 and um, yeah, I'm super sensitive to mycotoxins. Interesting. Very interesting. So, um, okay. Uh, where do I want to go from here? Let's. I think we should talk about some um, the 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 way we treat people today. I would really like to hear your opinion on this because, you know, we might be treating a patient for insulin resistance. We might be treating someone for their thyroid. We might be treating someone uh, for um, their brain fog. You know, maybe with a bit a few nutraceuticals, um, and then we're treating all treating all of that. And then there's mold exposure on the other side. And no one's talking about that. Or it might be Lyme or, you know, whatever else it might be. How do we start to get our medical system talking in and amongst itself, uh, you know, and bringing specialisations together to start treating the body as a whole? It's such a frustrating thing that all these things get compartmentalised and you see different people for different things. But root cause medicine shows us that often there's a few key things that are creating the downstream effects. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So again, if you if you come from the test tube and we're, you know, I, I had no interest in functional medicine, integrative medicine as a classically trained neurologist. I didn't believe in any of that stuff. Mm. But what's interesting is that if you actually follow it from the research, the research actually fits much better with functional medicine. What has been called alternative medicine is actually more scientifically valid medicine. Yes. And what Thank we call you. standard of care medicine. The standard yeah. of care doesn't show you that, hey, here are all the things that are actually causing this problem. Let's get after those particular things. So, in fact, the, unfortunately, the way this is dealt with in the vast majority of centers, you go in, you say, I'm having trouble with my cognition. They do some tests. They don't look for what's actually causing it. And I always say that, imagine you took your car in and they said, oh, yeah, we understand what this is. This is called car not working syndrome. <laughs> and you said, what the heck? Is, I mean, that's what Alzheimer's is. It's just a name. Yeah. You say, well, don't you want to know why my car is not working? It's like, well, no, we don't do those tests because they're not reimbursed. I mean, it just it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> You have to go after the things that are actually causing this. And when you do that, you can see. And as you said, when you are going to treat someone with cognitive decline, and I, I said this recently in an in a, a op-ed, which they refused to publish because it said, you know, this isn't what neurologists do for Alzheimer's. Well, it's what we should be doing for Alzheimer's. If you're not dealing with systemic inflammation, you are probably offering suboptimal care to your patients. If you're not dealing with insulin resistance, just as you said, and pathogens, by the way, you are offering suboptimal care to your patients. If you're not dealing with deficiencies in nutrients, hormones, and trophic factors, you are not offering suboptimal care. If you're not dealing with metallotoxins, organic toxins, and biotoxins, you're not offering sub you're not offering optimal care. If you're not dealing with vascular issues, you're offering suboptimal care. And if you're not dealing with head injury, which is the other the other common uh, uh, precursor, then you're offering suboptimal care. So in a sense, as neurologists, we really should be doing the diagnosing, but not the treating. We really should be referring patients to functional medicine physicians or integrative medicine physicians for dealing with all of these systemic changes that are associated with cognitive decline. 
Absolutely. Uh, uh, that is just so fantastic to hear it put that way because my hope is that people will share this with their doctors to just start helping people broaden their minds as to why our patients stay sick and get worse and, yeah. you know, it's um, we've just got to stop it. Like, <laughs> it just gets so frustrated. So, but it's been amazing. You know, on my book tour last year, I met a couple of uh, physicians who said, look, I just want to thank you for your podcast and your work. It actually made me seek out functional medicine uh, studies. And now I actually offer as my practice, I am a functional medicine doctor. And it's just, so it gets out there and we have to just believe that little bit by little bit, we, um, we can make a difference. Well, I think showing people getting better. I think that's why it's so critical. The one thing that I've, has disappointed me is so many physicians and their patients haven't documented where they stand. You need to document where the person is at the beginning and then document their improvement. So as I mentioned, we just published 100 patients where we had documentation. But there were hundreds more who said, well, yeah, I'm better. Okay, where, you know, what, where are your cognitive tests? Oh, we didn't bother to do those. Mm. So you want to document things to show. Because I think when, you know, when we have enough people, we can say, look, we've documented beyond a question that people are getting better. Then that people will be more open to this approach. And by the way, you know, we started this back in 2011 when we had understood from the research that we need to look at all these different parameters we applied to do the first comprehensive trial for cognitive decline in Australia. Oh, and we wow. down, yeah, we were turned by, down by both the public and the private IRBs that said you are trying to do a multivariable trial. And everybody knows clinical trials are single variable. We said, yeah, but that's not the way this disease works. It is a complex chronic illness. So we need to have more variables that we're looking at. We need to look at an optimal program, not a monotherapy. So by the way, we got turned down again last year in the US. Finally, we are now just starting the trial. And this trial will be different than all previous trials in that we will actually be asking for each person, what is causing your cognitive decline? Instead of saying, we're simply gonna do this, we're simply gonna do that. There are other groups now that are doing um, packaged protocols of three or four things, great, but they still don't ask the question, what's actually causing your decline? So that's what this test, that's what this uh, trial will show. Oh, I'm very excited about that. And who has accepted it? Whereabouts? So this is going to be done in California and Oregon. Um, and we're working with three physicians, Dr. Ann Hathaway, uh, Dr. Uh, Deborah Gordon, uh, and Dr. Kathleen Toops, uh, who's here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So the, they will be seeing the patients, um, and then we will see. They will go on the, a program that is directed toward their problems uh, for nine months, and we'll see where they stand after that. Amazing. Uh, so it sounds like we're kind of naturally moving towards a bit of good news, and let's, let's actually start working on the what-to-dos. Uh, so... You know, obviously, I urge everybody to get your book, and that's going to be in the show notes uh, for people who haven't yet done that. Um, but when, what is the basic framework upon which you you tend to apply to patients? You've, you've mentioned the program a couple of times, and I'd love for us to give the listeners a bit more of a an insight into what that involves. Right. So we actually made a computer-generated algorithm. So this looks at all these different things. We call this recode for reversal of cognitive decline. And what it does is it looks at all these different parameters. So it looks to see, are there specific pathogens? Is there ongoing inflammation? Uh, is there 
insulin resistance, a critical piece. What is your hemoglobin A1C and things like that. Then it looks at various nutrients, hormones, and trophic support. It looks at the various toxins that we talked about. It looks at vascular parameters. So it looks across all those things and then, and then groups them and says, okay, this person, and by the way, we typically see between 10 and 25 contributors to cognitive decline. We haven't had a single case yet, and there are several thousand people who are doing this now. Uh, we haven't had a single case where the person came in and it was one thing, nothing else. People typically have some insulin resistance. They often have some inflammation. They often have some suboptimal nutrients and or hormones. They often have some toxin exposure. And these things collude to give you the cognitive decline. Therefore, no surprise, when you treat it, you have to deal with all these things. And one of the common things we do see related to what you had said earlier, people who have mycotoxin exposure, you can treat everything else, but until they get rid of that ongoing mycotoxin exposure, they're not gonna get their best outcome. So we wanna do as many things as we can. Now, interestingly, as people start to get better, they get over the hump essentially, very much like what was seen with cardiovascular disease, as Dean Ornish showed years ago, once you get over that hump, you actually start picking up the plaques. So once we see people get over the hump, they don't need to add a lot more things, but then what we wanna do is keep tweaking and see if we can get better and better results for them. So as they become insulin sensitive, as they become mildly ketotic, as they become less toxified, as they heal their guts, all these things contribute to their turning the corner. And no surprise, when something's been going on for 20 years, it takes you some time to turn the corner. Typically, we see it takes three to six months. And I always tell people, please live the program for three to six months. And then if you haven't turned the corner, then, then we need to look at, we need to have, we have a troubleshooting algorithm that looks at, you know, have you done the right things and are, are we on the right track here? So no surprise, this includes diet, exercise, optimizing sleep. We want to know your oximetry. So many people, as you know, um, have cognitive decline and often other things like macular degeneration because of poor oximetry at night. This is a critical thing. People are walking around. Of course, many of them have sleep apnea, but some of the people without sleep apnea still have desaturation at night that is harming them. And then, so diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training. Again, you're, you're optimizing the biochemistry and therefore brain training actually works pretty well. Then there are specific herbs, specific nutrients, specific supplements that are all critical. When you have the optimal personalized program for you, then typically you get better. Now, not everybody gets better. We are interested in those who do the best and those who do the least to understand what was special, what was different about these people. Mm, amazing. And uh, you, you mentioned mildly ketotic. Um, I'd like for you to expand upon what's happening there that makes it a beneficial state to achieve for um, people experiencing cognitive decline or early stage uh, Alzheimer's and uh, because it's such a contentious issue. So I guess I would also like to know um, if people do not have any cognitive decline, uh, do, is, do we have to be on ketogenic diets as well as a preventative measure or, or light ketogenic or cycling through, um, as you've talked about? I'd love uh, you to dive into that. So that's a great point. And it was shown years ago, as you know, 
that in fact there is this loss of glucose utilization in the brain of patients, even pre-Alzheimer's, people who are on their way to Alzheimer's. In fact, that's the basis of the FDG-PET diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, is this change in glucose utilization. And so it was found that in fact you could use this and compensate with ketone bodies because the brain can metabolize ketone bodies. You do have a changeover period, as you know, a week or two, but in fact the brain can utilize ketone bodies. So, excuse me, yes, for people who are who already have cognitive decline, we recommend that they get into mild ketosis. We call the diet approach uh, KetoFlex 12-3. It is uh, driving people into mild ketosis. Um, it is flexitarian. You want to be a vegetarian or a vegan? No problem. You want to not be a vegetarian or vegan? No problem. But you want to use you know fish that are wild caught, not farmed. Mm. You want to use? You're going to use some beef. You use this as a as a condiment. But you know grass fed beef, that sort of thing, pastured chicken. These are all fine. But you want to drive yourself into some ketosis. And interestingly, we've been finding that people tend to do better with the 1.5 millimolar to 4 millimolar. Originally, we were recommending just get up to 0.5, but it looks like people who actually have decline seem to do better with a little more. And in fact, of course, Dr. Stephen Kinane had shown that you can actually co compensate, and as you go up on the ketones, it compensates better. So in fact, that looks like a good way to go. Now, you mentioned, what about if you're asymptomatic? And that's a great question. The goal there is metabolic flexibility. Though I have to say, we don't know yet. If someone is at risk, will they do better over the years with simply having metabolic flexibility or will they do better with ongoing ketosis? We don't know yet. We suspect that the best thing to do when you are at risk is simply metabolic flexibility. You wanna be able to cycle back and forth, but make sure you're not inflexible. So many of us are inflexible. We can only burn the carbs. We're not good at burning the fats. We need to be able to do both. So as you say, you wanna be able to cycle. And what we recommend therefore is a high fat, uh, low carbohydrate, especially very low simple carbs, and then medium protein diet. So that, that way you, you burn your fats, you make your ketone bodies, you do well cognitively, and then, yeah, once a week or so you cycle out um, and you can have something different. You know, again, if you're doing 90% of the things right, uh, changing over every once in a while doesn't matter. You can cycle and have some sweet potatoes or, you know, have whatever you want to do. Uh, and again, as has been shown for years, yeah, you cheat every once in a while. It's not a bad idea. It's not a big deal. You cheat every day. That's a big deal. You're, you're then you're really literally killing yourself. Mm. So that's the sort of thing we recommend. And, you know, you can get a simple ketone meter uh, very inexpensively uh, and look to see where you stand with your ketones. And by the way, there's a wonderful new thing out from Abbott Labs, which is called Freestyle Libre where you literally, it's a patch you wear on your arm for two weeks and it gives you continuous glucose monitoring. Really nice thing to have. And you can look and see what are the foods that actually spiked your glucose? What are the foods that actually made you drop it too much and actually may wake you up and give you poor sleep because you are actually getting hypoglycemic at night, which is a relatively common thing to happen. So it can really help guide you in your choices. And also, by the way, it'll show you that what the doctor told you was true. When you eat these bad things, you are really killing yourself. And you don't really realize it until you see those spikes on your meter. Mm. Um, but there are a lot of whole foods that would 
um, contain lots of natural sugars, you know, apples, bananas, uh, mango, uh, sweet fruits like grapes as well. Um, and is, is a spike harmful if it's really simple fruit sugars that kind of then get passed through quite quickly? Is that something we need to be concerned about in this preventative um, game that we're playing? Yeah, it turns out, in fact, that um, although it's not as bad because many of these fruits, as you know, have high fiber contents. And yeah. I actually think this is something that is, again, like looking at uh, sleep desaturation of oxygen. One of the things that's just been ignored is the importance of a high fiber diet. Mm. Um, it's often been pointed out. Uh, you know, when, when we were cave people, we were eating something like 100 grams of fiber today, uh, a day, and now we're eating like five grams of fiber. I mean, it's unbelievable. We weren't me meant to eat the sugar that we eat, and we weren't meant to eat the low fiber diets that we eat. So whether you can get it from your broccoli and your lettuce and your cabbage and things like that, or whether you get it from things like uh, you know, things like uh, organic psyllium husk or konjac root or whatever you like to use, it really is important. It helps your cholesterol. It helps your Alzheimer's. It helps your detoxification. It helps your glycemic index, all these things. So these fruits, the reason I brought this up is these fruits often have some fiber with them. However, you brought up some ones that aren't so great, things like bananas and mangoes. Tropical fruits have a high glycemic index. And actually for anyone who is especially who's already having cognitive decline, we'd rather have them stick with low glycemic fruits like strawberries and blueberries and things like that and stay away from these high glycemic fruits except on rare occasions because they can spike your, uh, your glucose, also spike your fructose, um, and they can be damaging, no question about it. Mm, thanks for clearing that up. And uh, if we're extremely active... Um, where we do burn a lot of uh, a lot of energy in the body, would that then mean that you could modulate your intake of those things sporadically um, every now and then? It wouldn't be so bad, kind of thing. Yes, and no question, exercise is a huge part of this. Mm. Both cardiovascular exercise, which is very helpful, um, and very helpful for things like BDNF and helpful for things like nitric oxide and stuff like that. And then on the other hand, also strength training, which mm. is good insulin resistance and insulin resistance is a huge part of Alzheimer's in fact professor Ed Getzel from University of California showed that virtually everybody with Alzheimer's disease has insulin resistance in their brains whether or not they have it peripherally oh, wow. so huge thing and again why the appropriate diet and, and exercise and sleep are so critical to this process and why again we're doing the wrong things for ourselves putting ourselves at great risk for Alzheimer's. And by the way, for people who have toxin-related Alzheimer's, bioidentical hormone replacement turns out to be one of the very powerful things to use. Wow. Uh, so is that when you were talking about testosterone and estradiol implications of, of low levels, um, that's when bioidentical hormones can be really um, Absolutely. Okay. Again, for supporting that neuronal network, Mm. You need critical factors, and it does include your hormones, it does include your nutrients, it does include your trophic factors. Mm. Thank you. Um, fish oil, uh, high supplementation of EPA, DHA. A lot of the doctors in the brain world, uh, you know, especially people helping people with biotoxin, mold, uh, Lyme diseases, uh, make recommendations for really high levels. 
Um, but then there's a lot of confusion because a lot of people are saying these are in toxic amounts. We should just be eating fish and let our bodies convert what they need. What's your take uh, on the EPA, DHA supplementation? Yeah. Well, you know, Professor Clayton from uh, Oxford has pointed out that most of the studies have suggested that although it's great to have the fish and get those oils, when you actually isolate the oils, they're often not as good. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of think, you know, hedging our bets. Yes, have some fish. Get those things in your body because no question, omega-3s are really important. Having a good omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, which is one of the things we look at, one of the things that's critical. Um, is, is important. And in fact, some very nice work from Professor Wortman from MIT over the years showed that making new synapses, very helpful to have both your omega-3s and CDP choline. So these things are both critical for synapse formation. So yes, you absolutely want to have omega-3s. Now, yes, it's also fine to take some in supplement form, but there are some caveats there. You want to make sure it's from a good source. Um, if it's from fish, make sure it's clean. People like to use krill oil. That's actually a, quite a good idea. Well, we'd like to be careful about some of the contaminants, things like mercury. If you're going to eat the fish, please stay away from high mercury fish, like tuna fish and swordfish and shark and tilefish, and stay with the guys that are the non Big, uh, big mouth fish with long lives, the ones at the bottom of the food chain that have the good omega-3s without the high mercury, so-called smash fish. So that's salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. But for the mackerel, not king mackerel, because they're also not good for you. But uh, So those are all good things to do and certainly uh, can help. Amazing. And in terms of what you're most excited about as we wrap up here, I would love to hear uh, the, you know, this, this trial that you're just about to start. That's really exciting. What do you think are some of the, the most exciting things happening in your work right now with your colleagues, the discussions you're having, the things that people are finding that give us a hint as to just how much more we're going to be able to do in the future? Yeah. So I'm excited right now about what I call mismatch theory. And the idea is that all degenerative diseases seem to come from a mismatch between the supply and the demand. We've got this beautiful balance when you're younger. And then when as the supply goes down, the demand goes up, chronic or repeated mismatch leads to a degenerative process. And each subsystem has its unique demand and supplies. So Alzheimer's, it's all about plasticity. Parkinson's is all about mitochondrial complex one. If you just inhibit that complex, you get Parkinson's over time. So there is a mismatch for what is required for motor control. That apparently requires a very good level of mitochondrial complex one. Of course, all of these things play onto your genome. But in each case, you have this same thing with macular degeneration. You have a specific set of demands and a specific set of supplies. And when those are mismatched, you end up with macular degeneration. Lewy body disease, same thing. Frontotemporal dementia, same thing. ALS, same thing. You mentioned earlier the cyanobacteria. So this is one of the things where, again, it increases the demand and does not help the supply. So anytime you have that, and there are many ways you can see that you can get there, but you can see for each different disease, there's a different subsystem that has had this mismatch. So we're starting something called the ARC project. And just as Noah's ARC was, you know, two by two by two, the idea is to have a small number of people 
who are very early on in a process of any one of these diseases, for which, as you know, there really aren't good treatments for any of these. Mm. There are some symptomatic treatments for Parkinson's. That's great. But for these other ones, there's really little or nothing. You look at something like PSP, there's nothing. CBD, nothing. So these, these kind of diseases, ALS, very little. So the, the idea here is get a small number of people study them then extensively with a functional medicine approach. You want to know what are all the supplies and the demands and what is missing here? Why have they entered this process? And then work with them to continue to optimize the approach that you take to each of these things. So my hope is that before I'm gone from this earth, there will be effective treatment and reversal for all of these neurodegenerative conditions. That's that the goal. Is- that is a very exciting goal. Amazing. Um, and, and a couple of little final questions here. Uh, we often talk about the importance of routine in life, you know, it gets you not thinking too much about all the, um, the like silly details so that you can systemize and you can free yourself up to create more and feel like there's less on your to-do list. But then there's the confusion around like what, how much do we want to make our brains work though to train them to continue to um, perform well? Yeah. So as you indicated, you know, there's the standard stuff. And again, that's the less plastic part of your brain. Uh Um, But then the plastic part of your brain, yes, you should challenge. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's a little bit like working out with weights. If you're going to go and work out with weights, then you don't want to do it on the background of no nutrition and massive systemic inflammation. You're just going to hurt yourself. So the idea here is, yes, you want that plasticity. You want to do brain training or learning a new language or learning the violin or a new instrument, whatever you like, but don't do it on the background of no support. You want the optimal biochemistry so that you can support the challenge. You really need both. You need to optimize the situation, and then you need to take advantage of it. If you're missing either one, it's not going to work nearly as well. And yeah, challenge yourself, but you don't want to do it in a situation in which there's so much stress. Stress itself causes hippocampal atrophy. You ramp up that cortisol, and you actually damage your hippocampus. So you don't want to do that. So you want to kind of match those. And, you know, as a scientist, if if you had told me 15 years ago I was going to be talking to people about things like meditation and joy and, uh, you know, and looking at these various parameters and sleep apnea and things like that, I would have laughed because I thought, you know, this stuff is worthless. But in fact, you know, the data are there and they're accumulating that these things are all crucial. And it now shows us how they all fit into the signaling pathway and into the biochemistry of plasticity. Mm. And I almost feel like they all fit into the um, yin that we need to create in our very yang modern world. It's literally our new mechanism for survival is to balance out the intensity of modern life with some of the calm of uh, of, uh, ancient wisdom and, and the art of meditation. I totally agree. Yeah, this is why we say we need to try to train the 21st century physician. The tra- traditional Chinese physicians, very good at whole body, but they didn't know anything about DNA or RNA or microRNAs or metabolome or any of that stuff. Mm. The modern physicians 
uh, very good with metabolomes and, you know, and looking at DNA and stuff, but they don't understand about how this fits as a whole body. So we really need to, to combine these two to get a new kind of physician who understands both sides of that. That is a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, uh, Doc. It was just an absolute pleasure uh, having the generosity of your time sharing with us some of the hope uh, that we can have for the future, even for now with your incredible cognoscopy testing. I want to urge every single person here to head to the show notes and connect with Dale's work um, because there's a lot of resources both from the book and from his website. So thank you once again for joining us and I look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you and congratulations on, on your work and I look forward to further discussions. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at lotoxlife and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I may everything super easy lotox life so you can find it really really simply thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on stitcher or itunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show and also to let you know that you can join us on patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show. You're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.